Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 30 through 37. Mark 9, 30 through 37. This is God's holy word from the New Testament. Mark 9, beginning verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us. So how do you feel about the silent treatment? Your friend, spouse, or sibling just doesn't respond to you. They will not communicate. Well, there are a few rare times when this is welcome, but most of all, this drives us crazy. It's like those three dots after you send a text. They tempt you that there will be a response but nothing comes. Indeed, the silent treatment can torture your sanity. Depending on the context, the other person's silence communicates plenty, but you're not always sure exactly what. Did they hear me? Did I say something wrong? Is she mad? What is he mad about? Silence can be a cruel punishment. It can also be a powerful way to disrespect. The other person doesn't even deserve an answer. This can be a public slap in the face. Thus, by and large, the silent treatment is not very loving or kind, which is especially why it should not be used on our Lord. Can you imagine someone giving Christ the silent treatment? But this is exactly what the disciples do here. Though surprisingly, Jesus doesn't tase them with a bit of lightning, but he instructs them and us about the humble manner of the Christian life. So ever since he began his ministry, our Lord has been a man on the move. His was a traveling ministry, and yet for the most part, there is, this has felt more like wandering. That is, Mark did not record any deliberate pattern or map that Jesus was following. Though this has recently changed, in the last chapter, Jesus hiked up to Caesarea Philippi, which laid on the northern border of the Old Testament promised land. Here, Peter confessed him to be the Christ, and Jesus turned himself south. Our Lord set himself on a road south towards Jerusalem. Yes, this is the beginning of the end for our Lord. And so now he reaches Galilee, and he wants to slip through the region incognito. Now, out in the open, Jesus has already blanketed Galilee with his preaching and signs, but no more. 
He's finished with being public in Galilee. Instead, he will focus on his disciples. It's time to tend to his own house of followers. And so he will travel through Galilee under the cover of secrecy. And you can tell that Jesus has Jerusalem on the mind, for he again forecasts his rejection and murder in the holy city. This is the second time Jesus explicitly lays out his death and resurrection for the disciples. And this second prediction is roughly the same as the first. He will be rejected, killed, and in three days he will be raised. Yet Jesus does tweak his words a bit with huge impact. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. This line is worth a thousand pictures. To begin with, he will be delivered over. Now, this word has two primary senses. One is the legal act of arresting and giving to the executioner. It is jail and the hangman's news. Secondly, though, it can mean betrayal, the treachery of a close friend. And both meanings work here. The Son of Man will be arrested, and he will be betrayed by the kiss of Judas. Next, the word is passive, which begs the question of agency. Who will hand Jesus over? Well, as betrayal, Judas is the prime mover. As arresting, then the chief priests come into view. Yet in Scripture, these passives passives are often used to point to God. It is ultimately God who allows and delivers over the life of the Son of Man. Things just got deep. And there's more. As the Son of Man is given into the hands of men, the Son of Man will be manhandled. In the Old Testament, the hands of man was an idiom for pitiless cruelty. Men can be capricious and torturous. They get bloodthirsty and lust for new and imaginative ways to torment. Thus, in 2 Samuel 24, when David faced the punishment, he begged, Let me not fall or let me fall into the Lord's hands, who is merciful, but let me not fall into the hands of men. This is why we read Psalm 140, where David again prayed to be delivered from violent hands. That is, there is no pity where Jesus is going. Finally, there's this spicy play. The Son of Man in man's hands. As the Son of Man, he is the true man killed by humanity. He's the glorious one, tormented by men. He is God given over to the clutches of humans. He is the Savior stabbed and bled by those he came to redeem. The divine Son of Man will suffer under the savage justice of man. The chilling horrors and the mysterious wonders of our Lord's death are all wrapped up in this line. The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. Everything is wrong about this, and yet it's the perfect act of love for our salvation. God put his Son in the clause, into the claws of sinners to redeem sinners. This stretches even our hearts and minds, 
And so it's no wonder that the disciples were clueless. And the text does not sugarcoat their ignorance. They did not get it at all. This saying made no sense to them. Death, betrayal, son of man, and resurrection. All the pieces are fuzzy, and none of them fit together. And to make it worse, they are too afraid to clarify their confusion. If a student doesn't understand something, it is their responsibility to raise their hand and get clarity. But the disciples are bad students who stay in their confusion and just hope that it will not be on the test. But why are they afraid? Well, maybe the truth of Jesus' death is just too scary for them. They just can't face it. Jesus' prediction may have felt too unorthodox to them. They won't accept it. The disciples may have been afraid of what it meant for them. If Jesus dies, what sort of suffering is in the cards for us? Or they might have been too ashamed to show their slowness. Their egos were too insecure. This fear is an act of self-interest and self-protection. Well, Mark doesn't tell us the motive of their fear. Any of these options could be true, and maybe it's a mix of them. Either way, the disciples have a a phobic aversion to the cross. They don't get it, and so they select the ignorance-is-bliss option. And what comes next makes their fearful ignorance worse. This secret road trip now brings them to Capernaum and to the privacy of a home. And our Lord is curious. As you know, when you're walking in a group, it's normal for the group to get spread out. People end up in twos or threes, and you cannot hear what the people in front or in the back are saying. Well, Jesus, maybe he was walking up ahead, and the disciples were chatting among themselves in the back. It was one of those conversations you did not want your mom or dad to be a part of. And so Jesus asked them, what are, you, what are they talking about? You all seem so he, in a heated discussion. What was it? Now, this is an innocent enough question between friends, but the disciples refuse to answer. They give Jesus the silent treatment. When the Lord a- asks you a question, you do not have the right to pull the fifth, but the twelve do it anyway. This is a loud silence. But what is it saying? Well, it could be the silence of guilt and shame that hides sin. It could be the quiet of stubborn disagreement. You won't agree, so you don't need to know. It could be the non-response of an arrogant challenge. We don't have to tell you, for it's none of your business. This silent treatment could be saying several things. We're not sure which one, but none of them are good. This is bold and evasive silence. Mark, though, does tell us what they were hiding. They kept under a lid their debate about who was the greatest. The disciples are competing. They are measuring themselves against each other. There has to be a pecking order. Someone has to be on top and another on the bottom. God did create humans equal, but the gifts of common grace are not distributed equally. 
So the disciples must set the hierarchy. Who's the smartest of the bunch? Who's the most devoted? Which one performed the most healings or the grandest ones? Who bested the biggest and baddest demon? Which disciple preached to the largest crowd? And who brought in the most money? With a complex equation that factors in intelligence, healings, exorcism, and fame, the disciples are playing a robust game of king of the hill. And why must they sort themselves from A plus to D minus? Because the better you are, the better chair you get in Christ's kingdom. Christ is, after all, the Messiah who's restoring the kingdom to Israel. And every king needs honorable and famous cabinet members. He's going to need a secretary of the state, generals, a fed chair, a chief justice, and a vice president. Why else did Jesus pick the inner circle of the twelve? Thus, the greater the disciple, the more glory and fame he will be rewarded with. No wonder they were afraid to ask Jesus about his death. They had eyes only for governmental power. They were playing politics. It's not surprising that they want to keep this competition from the Lord. Though there is a sad irony here. On the road that is taking Jesus to the cross, the disciples flaunt their greatness. As Jesus is decreasing, the twelve are trying to increase themselves. If it doesn't make you mad, it will make you cry. Our Lord, though, is merciful and patient with them. He, of course, knew the game they were playing, and he sits them down for a little lesson. I know you've been discussing the greatest, so if you want to be first, you have to be last. The greatest is the servant of all. Now, in first impression, it seems as if Jesus reverses the world's scale of glory and superiority. It's not fame and fortune, not power and prestige, not glory or genius that wins you the gold medal. Rather, it's humble service. Jesus changes the greatness standard from a muscled man like the rock to a bent lady like Mother Teresa. And this is how this teaching is most often understood or practiced in the church. All the applause and acclaim to those judged to be the best servant. But this doesn't really work. For one, Jesus says you have to be last, and no one wants to be last. Two, to compete for last place is an oxymoron. It doesn't really make sense. Three, Jesus puts an honor on what is shameful. The last place servant doesn't even get a participation ribbon. To give the last place the gold medal would mean you're no longer last. And to be servant of all means you're inferior to everyone else. Everyone's higher than you, so you can only serve. Also, servants don't get paid or thanked. Therefore, Jesus is not reversing the competitive scale of greatness, but he's obliterating it. By saying that you have to be last removes power and glory as a target of our ambition. Jesus erases the uh, erases pride of place from our ambitions. 
Instead, the goal of our aspirations is to be service, which is about others. Service is about lifting others up and not paying attention to yourself. If you help someone just to get yourself a promotion, it isn't truly service. That person is just an object and a means to your self-promotion. Thus, by telling us to be last, a servant of all, Jesus puts an end to competitive piety. He's telling the disciples to stop the competition for greatness. Jesus is saying, stop the ambition for glory and do not compete. Just serve others as if they were your betters. And to drive this point home, Jesus performs a little skit. He does a symbolic act. As he's sitting down in the middle of the disciples, our Lord summons a child. And the text is quite clear. It's just a kid. There's no concern if it was a boy or girl. Gender's no factor. Likewise, age is not an issue. The kid may be three or 11. It doesn't matter. Next, Jesus takes the kid in his arms. He hugs the child, which is vibrantly parental. In the Old Testament, fathers hold their kids just as much as mothers. So this embrace is not distinctly motherly or fatherly. It's merely parental. Jesus warmly hugs the kid. Next, he employs the kid as a symbol, as an example of what it means to be last place servant. So he says next, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. And this reception belongs to the metaphor of hosting. To receive the kid is to invite them into your home to share your table. Now, of course, hosting is a good metaphor for serving, as it involves washing feet, giving the person a comfortable chair, cooking and serving their food, and cleaning up. But how does this clarify being a last servant? Well, the kid here is not about being undervalued, per se, as if the ancients didn't love their kids. They did. The kid here doesn't represent innocence, immaturity, or even loneliness per se. Rather, it's about the legal status of kids. For kids could not own property, and they had no rights to sue or to take you to court. A kid was not even guaranteed the family's inheritance, as if a dad was not happy with a kid, he could adopt another heir to carry on his name and property. Next, there is hospitality, which was an elaborate system of reciprocity and social stratification in the ancient world. An inferior would host a superior in order to gain his protection as a patron. Superiors could host inferiors to ensure their honor and service. Hospitality was a quid pro quo of backscratching. A kid, though, owned nothing and had no rights, which means the kid could not repay you. Hosting a kid got you nothing in return for opening up your house. Entertaining a kid abolishes reciprocity, which is why it wasn't done in the ancient world. Receiving a kid, then, means serving for nothing in return. It is to spend and not get reimbursed, 
It is to be help and not be thanked. It is to serve for no earthly good. No money, no applause, no medals, honors, or thank you cards. Thus Jesus says the blessing of your service is spiritual. As you receive the kid, you host Jesus, and not just Jesus, but the Father who sent him. As you host the child for no earthly benefit or honor, you actually have the Father and Son sitting at your dining room table. And there's no greater honor than this. In short, Jesus' point is that when you serve, do not let your right hand know what your left is doing. If you're praised on earth, you've received a reward. But your service is secret as it, then it receive, as it receives no earthly honors. The Father in heaven will see it and reward you. This is why Jesus does away with competition. Competition is about getting something in return. But being the last, ser- last place servant, there is no return. Such service is being a person of others. It loves the other for who they are, as a person, not as an object, for their good, and not just as a means of your self-promotion. And Jesus calls us to be last place servants, because this is what he did for us. Indeed, the only one who truly became last, who was the servant of all, was Christ. He is the Son of Man who fell into the hands of humanity. He is the one true man who came to serve all humanity, and they killed him for it. Jesus is the one who hosted us in love, we who can never repay him. Indeed, Jesus served on the cross for our salvation, for no earthly good. Jesus got not a shekel for his service. He received no medal of honor, no Nobel Prize, and not even a thank you note or a nod of acknowledgement. Sure, our Lord gained the eternal reward of heaven and us as his everlasting people. But he died for you on the cross for no earthly benefit here and now. Jesus was the man for others, the man for you. He spent all he had, and he was spent. He paid all for you to the point of being naked and nailed to the tree. Jesus gave it all so that you get all the heavenly blessings as a free gift. Jesus didn't use you for his benefit, but he was used for your benefit. Thus, our hosting a kid means we accept the cross of Christ as our highest good and blessing. It means that we embrace the life of service to image him. We put behind us the world's ambition for status and honor. We cease competing with each other in matters of piety and good deeds. And we seek to serve others for nothing in return. And as we serve for no earthly good, the Father and the Son sit at your table. The greatest blessing of all that redounds for his glory and our good. Thus may we lift high our suffering Savior 
And may we joyfully serve in his image. Amen.